What is a biblical view or a view based on the Bible of Islam? This is Evidence and Answers with author, apologist, speaker, and scholar, Pat Zucharin. Today, author Kirby Anderson talks about Islam in light of the Bible. Kirby Anderson is with Probe Ministries. You can go to probe.org for more resources, as well as our website, evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris, and today I join Pat in interviewing Kirby Anderson on Islam in light of the Bible and in light of the teachings of Christ. And I want to remind you that this is a two-part series on Islam, and you can get these resources when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to part two of this interview with Kirby Anderson. Pat? Thanks, Kevin. Yes, back with us once again is one of our favorite guests and my boss at Probe Ministries, Kirby Anderson. He's the host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show Point of View, and we're excited because he's got a new book out, A Biblical Point of View on Islam. So, Kirby, welcome back to the show. Always good to be here. Well, we're talking about terrorism today. And, Kirby, what about the war on terror? Did major political leaders see this conflict coming? You know, I think for some of us that caught us off guard, we saw some of the terrorist actions that took place maybe in Africa. We saw the first attempt on the World Trade Tower. But really, 9-11, I think, got a lot of people's attention for the first time. But I think it is helpful to understand that those people who were trend watchers saw that this was going to take place. Back in 1990, Samuel Huntington, who is a professor at Harvard University, and I've had a chance to share a platform with him once, uh, he wrote an article for Foreign Affairs, which is the journal of record for the Council on Foreign Relations, and it was about the clash of civilizations. Well, that particular article generated more response than any other article that had ever been written in Foreign Affairs since World War II. Uh, Then he went on to write a book called The Clash of Civilizations. Now, what did he say? Well, he said a lot of things. I'll try to summarize them. First of all, this was a time when the Berlin Wall had fallen, and there were people writing books, Pat, who were saying, this is the end of history. You know, we're no longer going to have communism. All the conflicts that we've seen are going to evaporate. Uh, The argument was is that all these countries are going to have McDonald's, they're going to have Coca-Cola, there's going to be a uniform society, and there will be no more conflicts. And... um, Samuel Huntington said, well, I disagree. Rather strongly, I disagree. And first of all, he predicted that those countries which were divided uh, politically but united ethnically would come together. And so he was predicting that East and West Germany would come together fairly quickly, and that's exactly the case. He was also predicting that those countries which were united politically but divided ethnically would fall apart, and that's exactly what happened in Yugoslavia. And you can see that uh, he was, in a sense, predicting the war in Bosnia and Kosovo. But long term, he was looking at something else, and he predicted that by the 21st century, he believed that there would be three major civilizations in the world. The first is what he called Western universalism. That's the West and all that we take for granted, the idea of equal rights under a constitution of sorts, one person, one vote, uh, equal protection, due process, all the things that we take for granted as part of the Western world. Number two, he talked about Chinese assertion. Don't want to forget a billion Chinese, but we're going to ignore that for our discussion today and go to our third issue, and that is Muslim militancy. Now, he didn't mean that every Muslim was militant. He didn't mean that every Muslim country was militant. But what he was trying to say is that he believed that there would be a very significant clash between the West and Islam. Has that been the case? Of course it's been the case. That's exactly what we've seen. Now, for our Christian audience, we might also point out that he did not say this, but I add to that, not only is it a clash between the West and Islam, 
Uh, and when we talk about missions, it's also a clash between Christianity and Islam. It used to be that the really closed countries of the world were the communist countries. And you and I have both been to Hungary, and we've had staff members that have been to Russia and Ukraine and Siberia and China. Now, there's still a lot of uh, uh, limitation for religious liberty there. But in most of at least the European communist countries, those countries are open quite a bit. The really close countries today are the Muslim countries. But the point I'm making is, is that even though terrorism did catch many political leaders off guard, people like Samuel Huntington predicted that the real clash in the 21st century is the clash between Islam and the West. And when we see that, we recognize that it varies from area to area. But you've been to Israel, and you can certainly point out the fact that if you look at Israel and look at the 22 different Arab nations around it, there are tremendous tensions there. Uh, some of our staff have been to other areas in the world, but it doesn't matter whether you go to Liberia, Sudan, or Uganda. It doesn't matter whether you go to Iraq or Iran, or you go to the stand countries, Uzbekistan, Turbikistan. You can recognize very clearly that Islam is the predominant issue today as we talk about the issue of terrorism. doesn't mean that all Muslims are terrorists, but it does mean that almost all terrorist actions today come from radical Muslims. Yes, now, Kirby, there's some confusion out there between terrorism and military war. Uh, what's the difference there? And, and let's define terrorism a little bit. Right, and I uh, wrote a column back in the 1980s and actually did a week of radio shows on the Probe Show in which I was becoming more and more dissatisfied with people that would say, well, you know, terrorism is just in the eye of the beholder. Used to hear that one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Mm -hmm. Well, I wrote a piece that really came back to the idea that if you want to understand the way in which warfare has normally been conducted, and I recognize there have been many abuses, but this idea of a just war is that the goal then was to bring about a peace and to actually see civilians as collateral damage and to do all that you can to prevent the taking of any life of a civilian, that the actual warfare in a typical war was against enemy combatants. By contrast, terrorism, by its very nature, was not looking to attack enemy combatants, although it wasn't turning that down, but was to actually try to maximize civilian casualties. And so terrorism is based upon the idea of bringing terror to the population, not fighting a war out on a battlefield, but instead trying to, through guerrilla warfare, use uh, uh, various kinds of devices, suicide bombers, IEDs, and others to actually terrorize the citizens. So one of the fundamental distinctions between standard military warfare and terrorism is the goal in military warfare was to go beyond a reasonable doubt to try to prevent civilian casualties. And if you look at the conduct of the war in Iraq, and I recognize that many listeners are all over the map on that, but I think one thing you can say is that there are very good examples of where the military has gone out of its way to try to prevent military casualties. And if there is a, a particular area Area that they have actually tried to mark with a laser for a bomb and use a smart bomb only when they are sure that it will only take out that building are they willing to release that bomb. That is just the difference of the night and day between the typical terrorist activity where an individual straps bombs on himself or herself, goes into a crowded place, and blows that up. The goal in terrorism is to have the maximum number of civilian casualties. The goal in at least military warfare, rightly done, is to minimize those. That's a very important distinction. I was out in the University of Cal um, North Carolina quite a liberal crowd was out there condemning the U.S. actions and 
uh, any kind of warfare. And I said, well, we're not talking on the same moral grounds here. The U.S. spends millions of dollars to make their bombs more precise so that they can hit their military targets right on the dot. Whereas terrorists, their goal is maximum destruction of civilian populations. They don't care just about being precise. They just want maximum casualties. So we're talking on two different moral grounds here. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that there have been some times when the military has done a really bad job of uh, the way in which they've prosecuted a war. And we understand that because there's also been friendly fire deaths. So some of their own have been killed by situations and bad decisions. That is the nature of warfare. But the goal was not to kill your own officers. The goal was not to kill your own soldiers or Marines or whoever. And the goal was not to kill civilians. Sometimes bad decisions and mistakes are made. That's not what should be the goal in warfare. The goal is to try to minimize civilian casualties, and as you point out in terrorist actions, the goal is to maximize civilian casualties. Mm. Well, let's talk about jihad. Uh, what exactly is jihad, and is there a connection there between the teaching on jihad and terrorism? I think that's the key issue, Pat, because has a particular Muslim will interpret the Quran on the issue of jihad, this really is the difference. Because if indeed you see jihad as a struggle, and really, the, if you can go into one chapter, if you wanted to just read one chapter in the Quran, I would recommend that you read chapter 9. It's called Surah 9, because that's where you find many of these so-called verses of the sword, where you get this idea of jihad. And most of the time, in our English translations, they're translated as strive hard or to strive. And it is the idea of striving. It comes, uh, really, it's the noun, ver, noun version of the verb jahidi. And jihad or jihad is really this idea of striving. Now, for many Muslims, this striving is an intellectual striving or a spiritual striving, is striving to conform your will to the will of Allah. And if indeed the Muslim friends that you have have that perspective, they're going to be very peace-loving indeed. There are going to be others that are going to say, well, jihad was part of Muhammad's strategy, and maybe even the strategy in the you know, the early centuries of Islam, something like that. So they might at that point say, okay, that applied in the 7th century, maybe even the 8th century, but it doesn't anymore. So they'll contextualize it. Those will be peace-loving people. But if, however, they believe that jihad is a striving that takes place on the battlefield, which has been the traditional interpretation of jihad, well, then those are individuals are going to see this as a military operation. And so it really comes down to how you determine that word. It's a watershed. If you see that as a striving intellectually or spiritually, or if you contextualize it, they're going to be peace-loving. If indeed you see that as a jihad that needs to be fought out on the battlefield, then you can see that those are the jihadist or the Islamofascist or the Islamicist. Everybody's used different terms for that to describe those individuals who take a literal interpretation of the jihad and believe that that is the goal of every able-bodied Muslim to fight against the West and to fight against the infidels. Kirby, there seems to be two clashes that we're addressing here. One would be Western democracy and Muslim militancy. And the second clash would be between the Christian worldview and the Islam worldview. And so both of those are kind of intermingled, but they're also distinct. One on a governmental, security, foreign policy uh, level, and then the other on a spiritual level. And, but I can also see a lot of overlap there. Oh, I certainly you know, do, so. too. And here's a couple of points where that overlap actually makes it difficult. To remember the last time we got together, we talked about this idea of witnessing. One of the most difficult things in witnessing to your Muslim friends is oftentimes they will see those two connected totally. In other words, they'll say, for example, Kevin, well, you are from a Christian country. And I do not like what America sends to our country. 
pornography, uh, violence, sex, drugs, all sorts of things in the movies, all sorts of a lifestyle, globalization. Uh, one of the uh, arguments that Osama bin Laden used for his justification for 9-11 was the fact that you had infidel troops in the Holy Land, that you support the nation of Israel, that you, pour, you, know, you, you spread your evil and decadence around the world. And that's a place where I would have to, when I'm talking to my Muslim friends, say, I would agree. You know what? As Christians, we don't like everything that we see on television. We certainly don't like some of the things in the movie. We are really shamed in part because our country, which isn't really a Christian country, you know, the, the, the difficulty they have oftentimes is we have a separation of church and state. But you go to a typical Muslim country and there's really no uh, separation between uh, the religious and ecclesiastical and political structures. There's really no separation of mosque and state. And so they see those as Islamic countries, whereas here, this is Christian in the sense that there are a number of Christians, but it's not Christian in terms of the things coming out of Hollywood, not Christian in terms of some of the things being done even by multinational corporations. So I think it is very important to disengage those a little bit and say, as a Christian, I will agree with you, and I do agree with you, that I dislike some of the things that have been exported from our country around the world. As a Christian, it offends me, and as a Muslim, I can understand why it offends you. But at the same time, there are two different issues, and that's why it's important to ask yourself, if we're dealing with foreign policy issues, then we're really kind of dealing with Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, the idea of government, and what is the responsibility of a sovereign government when another government attacks us. But when we're over here in the Christian realm, we're really talking about what is our responsibility to share our faith. We're now kind of in Matthew 28 about going out and uh, making disciples. And so those are two different areas, but as you point out, sometimes they overlap, and sometimes that overlap makes it difficult for us when we share our faith with Muslims. Yeah, Kirby, you know, one of the uh, points that people bring up is what is the difference between the Quran's teaching on jihad and Old Testament holy war. And that's one of the issues you address in your book. It's a real helpful section there. What is the difference? I think it's an important one. As a matter of fact, I was teaching on this just two days ago, and before I'd even gotten into the second point, the student puts up her hand and she says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about the fact that the Quran teaches uh, jihad, and there are about a hundred different verses in the Quran that teach jihad. Uh, well, you know, what about our, you know, the Old Testament has some things, or they could look at the Crusades or whatever. And so I say, well, okay, let's go back and look at this. First of all, when we go to the Quran, and I'll take you again to the ninth chapter, Surah 9, and this was one of the last chapters written, because there's a, what is known as a doctrine of abrogation. Later revelation can abrogate earlier ones. And so when you t hear a Muslim say, well, there are lots of verses that talk about peace. Yes, there are a number of verses in the Quran that talk about peace, but those were the earlier revelation. The later revelation can abrogate or uh, completely change previous ones. And so when Muhammad was in power, that's when he wrote many of the chapters, including Surah 9. Well, there it talks about the fact that we fight and we kill the infidel, we attack them, the idea of dimitu, that they are to feel themselves subdued. All of those principles are found in the Quran. And these are universally binding principles for all people at all time. Uh, as illustrated by the fact that if you look at some of the fatwas that have come out from Zarqawi or Osama bin Laden, they will quote these verses to justify their military action, to justify their acts of terrorism. By contrast, let's go to the Old Testament. An example I use in my book is 1 Samuel 15, and here is specifically where Samuel tells Saul to go out and to kill the Amalekites. 
Now, listeners might say, well, who are the Amalekites? Well, if you go back to Exodus, you might have found a situation where Moses and the Israelites, as they're wandering in the wilderness, they're attacked by really the first terrorist group we've ever seen, and that is the Amalekites. They attacked from behind, they used guerrilla warfare. Uh, There's a battle that is fought between the Israelites and the Amalekites, and if you remember, when Moses' hand was raised, then the Israelites were prevailing, but then eventually he got tired of keeping his hand up. When he brought it back down, then the Amalekites began to prevail, so then people held his hand up, but they never really kind of finished the job. Now in 1 Samuel, we see that specifically Saul calls for Samuel to kill the Amalekites. It's so specific that in the next verse it says, but save the Kenites. They were a group nearby, but they had been good to the Israelites. And so the goal was to only to take out the Amalekites and to make sure there was no collateral damage, that none of the Kenites would be killed. So it's a direct and specific command about a specific ethnic group. Who are those? The Amalekites. So it was a direct and specific command given in the Old Testament theocracy, given to a specific group. It's not a universally binding principle. If there were Amalekites today, there aren't, but if there were, even so it wouldn't apply. But even so, most of us aren't Amalekites. So you can see there's nobody that's in the Christian world that is quoting 1 Samuel 15 to justify any kind of military action. When we go to the chapter on the Crusades, I'll be the first to admit that the Crusades were a mixture of some wise actions, because in some cases they were trying to defend Christians in Jerusalem, and others very unwise, immoral, and unjustifiable actions. You have all sorts of Christian leaders that have apologized for some of the actions that took place in the Crusades and use biblical justification for that apology. By contrast, you don't have Muslims apologizing for the Crusades, because after all, those were exactly fitting into the teaching of the Quran. So again, to sum up, when you look at the Quran, these are universally binding principles about jihad against infidels that apply to all people at all times. The very few examples you have in the Old Testament, and there are some, are specific commands in the Old Testament theocracy to a specific group. Now, if you do a comparison between the Quran and the New Testament, then you have a really striking statement. Because in the New Testament, what does it tell us to do? We are to love our enemies. We're to turn the other cheek. So my argument is, is the more literal you take the New Testament, the more likely you are to be peace-loving. But the more literal you take the Quran and the idea of jihad, the more likely you are to be warlike. Well, Kirby, continuing our talk on the war on terrorism, is this merely a military battle? You know, when you get into this, I think some people think that it is, and I think we've made some very significant mistakes, because oftentimes it's referred to as a war on terror. I'll be the first to admit that there are a lot of people that don't like that idea, because terror is a tactic. Uh, Charles Kruttammer a while back said, it'd be like saying in World War II, it's a war on kamikazes. I mean, no, I mean, you have to identify the enemy, and the enemy isn't even al-Qaeda. The enemy is broader than that, and it isn't just being fought militarily. Yes, we've had military conflicts in Chechnya and in the Philippines. Certainly, we've had them in Iraq in Iran, but we've also had military attacks against the United States, England, France, the UK, um, Spain, many others. And so we certainly recognize there are some military aspects to this, but if you really want to look at some of the greatest success we've had on the war on terror, they haven't involved the military at all. The Department of Defense, for example, was not involved in the breaking up of the terrorist cells at the UK, in which there were Muslims who were going to get on some of these uh, jetliners and blow them up over the Atlantic. Uh, The actual work there was done by tracing financial records, and the work was done a little bit by the United States through the CIA and the FBI, but primarily it was done through MI6 and Scotland Yard. So I think we have to understand that the war on terror is not just a military battle. Yes, we see what has happened in Afghanistan and in Iraq. 
But if you were to actually look at some of the great successes that we've had, and I've had a chance to interview an individual who has actually talked to and interviewed some of the key people who every morning wake up to and read the threat matrix, which is a matrix of all the military actions as well as all the other terrorist threats, a lot of what they do and a lot of their successes, first of all, will never really be known because by releasing some of that information, we might tip Muslim terrorists off. And number two, even when it is, it's certainly buried in the back page of the New York Times because it isn't really exciting, but it is very, very successful. So oftentimes when we think on the war on terror, we have to kind of put the words war and even war on terror in quotes because it isn't necessarily a typical war. Some have called it an asymmetric warfare, and it doesn't necessarily always involve the military. As a matter of fact, any listener here who is aware of anything that they think is a little bit strange might be the person who will provide prevent the next terrorist attack. If anybody remembers the Fort Dix 6, which happened in 2007, these were six individuals who were going to attack Fort Dix, and the way they were caught was because somebody working in a print shop noticed something that looked a little bit strange and called in uh, the intelligence forces, and they were able to break up a terrorist plot. So the good news is, is that even though this war on terror is fought by the military, and we certainly want to salute those who are in the military that have fought that, a lot of the battle will be taking place in our communities. And if we're the eyes and ears of the government, we'll be able to prevent some of these terrorist attacks. Now, Kirby, does the Bible provide any guidance on this current war on terrorism? This is a tough one because I've had some people say, you know, the Bible really doesn't say much about terrorism, and I'll be the first to admit that it doesn't. It doesn't even say a lot about war, but there have been people over time that have really spent some time trying to think about these issues from a uh, biblical point of view. And so those have been developed into what is known as the just war criteria. Now, these aren't necessarily biblical, but they take biblical principles to establish what a just war would be. And there are seven different criteria four, a just war, five, which are used before you go to war, two, that you use when you're in the midst of war. The first is the idea of a just cause. All aggression is condemned and only a defensive war is legitimate. Second is a just intention, the idea of trying to bring about a just peace. Number three, a last resort. A war is entered into when all negotiations and compromise have tried and been failing. A formal declaration, a formal declaration of war. A fifth one is limited objective. The purchase, the purpose is peace there or unconditional surrender. And so those are the five that are used most often to determine whether or not a war would be justifiable. Then two, when the war is being fought. One is called proportionate means, and this would be eliminating uh, the overuse of certain kinds of warfare and actions. And the second one relates to that, the idea of non-combatant immunity, that you try to minimize the number of civilian uh, combatants that find themselves in the military action, and you try to prevent civilian uh, uh, any kind of civilian ca uh, casualties. But the same question is oftentimes raised, okay, that worked well when you're talking about World War II. Uh, we tried as best as we could to prevent going into war, but after Pearl Harbor and with Adolf Hitler and all the things that were happening, and we finally had to go into war. But how does that relate to this issue of terrorism? And some have said, well, just war doesn't really apply because it only applies to nation states. And this is a, not a nation that's attacking us. Certainly Iraq and Iran could have been figured as nations. Maybe even Afghanistan could be. But the argument is made that really this doesn't apply. My answer to that is, is the idea of the just war was developed long before we even had nation states. As a matter of fact, the very first warfare that we ever fought in this country after the Revolutionary War was the war with the Barbary Pirates. 
because during the administration of John Adams, many of the Muslim pirates would actually take American ships. Then we would have to buy the prisoners back, buy the ships back, and all the rest. When Thomas Jefferson became president, he said, enough with this, and he decided no longer was he going to put up with that, and so he sent the the, uh, Marines to the shores of Tripoli, which of course you now find in the Marine Hymn, and actually to deal with this. So the first military action that was ever taken after the Revolutionary War in America actually was a war to deal with the terrorist Muslim pirates of that day, and thus I think you can take some of these same biblical principles about just war and apply those to our war on terror. Our guest has been Kirby Anderson, National Director at Probe Ministries and also the host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show Point of View. His book, A Biblical Point of View on Islam, outstanding book you're going to want to get. And we have several free copies here for a donation of any amount to Evidence and Answers. You can receive your free copy of this fantastic book that you're going to want to have, A Biblical Point of View on Islam. Kirby Anderson. Kirby, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just $2.50 on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want, and we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure and visit us online at evidenceandanswers.org.